Well, good morning, everyone. I'm uh, Art Crawley, as you see me usually back there. And uh, I'm here because, uh, as you know, all of you know, I imagine our pastor, Gordon, who's chomping at the bit to be able to come back and be with us, uh, has one more day um, before he's able to do that. So it's my pleasure to be here, and, uh, and his pleasure will to be back with you next week. Our scripture reading this morning is from 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 to 19. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Okay, I'm going to be looking for a response from you in this next few seconds. Some of you should know what the response is, and if you do, just shout it right out when I point to you. You ready? If there's something strange in the neighborhood, who are you gonna call? <laughs> well, I thought something was gonna happen there, but not that. <laughs> Okay, well, I'm going to admit that my attempts at being cool just got blown out of the water. <laughs> and uh, it was not a bad response from you folks, but uh, not all of you perhaps have known that refrain from, from uh, the movie Ghostbusters uh, and the song from that movie. But when I read the passage from 1 Peter uh, 4, verse 12, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial, trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. Uh, the words of that theme song from Ghostbusters jumped into my mind. It seems as if Peter was addressing himself to a question that was being asked by mostly young in the faith, mostly Gentile Christians in churches around parts of the Roman Empire. And we know the parts of the Roman Empire that we know today as Turkey. The letter is addressed to Christians living in areas where a lot of the earliest missionaries like Paul and Silas worked. And in the passage in chapter 4, it seems, it seems to be addressing Christians that really struggled with their notion that those who are seeking to be faithful, um, faithful to God, faithful to their new faith, could still be suffering. There were many Christians with a Jewish faith and heritage 
living in these regions as well, but people with a Jewish heritage would have had a better understanding of, uh, than these Gentile Christians of what it means to be suffering even though you are seeking to do right, to follow God faithfully. The songs found in the book of Isaiah that we call the Suffering Servant Songs um, were part of the fabric of Jewish heritage long before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. That struggle, the nagging question that arises when bad things happen to good people, it has uh, been a profound theme of Hebrew literature, at least from the time of Job to the present day, a few decades ago, when Harold Kushner's book of that title, uh, When Bad Things Happen to Good People, uh, was published. And there have been other things. Um, really, it's a perpetual theme, and it seems to be addressing a human dilemma um, down through the, the ages. But it seems that a larger proportion of First Peter's readers were not Jewish, uh, because there is quite a bit of in the letter which suggests that the Christians were coming to Christianity, converting to Christianity, from a, not from a Jewish background, but from a, uh, a background that Peter describes this way. You have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. That description of life prior to Christ sounds much more like the background of people coming out of a Greco-Roman culture rather than of a Jewish people of the first century AD. However, the experience of bad things happening to people who are trying to live good lives, um, wherever their values come from, be they Jewish or Christian or humanist or whatever, it is hard for us all and challenges us to our core, uh, to the core of our assumptions when we find that people who are trying to be good and trying to do good nevertheless um, suffer. It seems that all people are hardwired to believe that life should reward us according to what we have done. Um, and it is said that one of the contributing factors of post-traumatic stress disorder is a violent violation of this bedrock foundation of our sense of justice and our sense of meaning in the universe. It doesn't seem to matter what our religious convictions or beliefs are. When something tragic happens, we tend to cry out, why is this terrible thing happening to me? Or what did I do to deserve this? And we use words like deserve um, that come naturally to our lips because we're struggling with this dilemma. It seems that some of the most strident atheists are also some of the most angry people around when it comes to this question. I heard Stephen Fry in an interview on CBC, he's a very funny actor and comedian um, in England, uh, but he's also famously atheistic. And in, in this interview, uh, this story really about an experience he had in, in Ireland, um, he expressed his own rejection of faith but he also expressed, expressed a, a strident anger aimed towards uh, anyone who could believe in God, who has the power to stop the suffering of the innocents, and yet allows it to continue. But this anger seemed to be directed not only towards believers, but also uh, to a God he does not believe in. And he got into some trouble in Ireland, 
a number of years ago for going on the air and calling God an evil, capricious, monstrous maniac. And as a result of that, uh, he was investigated by the Irish police for uh, transgressions against laws of blasphemy. The Christian singer Amy Grant also struggled with this question. She was with a friend she had known for many years, or for a few years rather. She had known her only as a, an adult woman. And one day they had gone for a walk late in the afternoon, and as twilight descended, her friend began to tell her um, about her childhood and the sexual abuse that she had experienced. And Amy Grant heard that story, and it was crushing for her. And from that story, there flowed a song called Ask Me. And in the song, Amy asked the question, Ask me if I think there's a God up in the heavens. Where did he go in the middle of her shame? There is more to that song, and I'll refer to it a little bit later in this message. But I just want to give these two examples of celebrities who have struggled with this opposition between two deep-seated, simultaneous, but incompatible convictions. Because uh, these outspoken celebrities stand in some ways as a representative of all of us. When we experience this conflict, it can challenge our faith. Now, it is hard for us to get into the heads of people who lived thousands of years ago in a different cultural heritage. Um, but this dilemma we have been talking about seems to be pretty universal. Uh, and the Greco-Roman world was populated with a rich panoply of gods and goddesses and literature full of the stories of interplay between humanity and the gods, the universe. And there's no shortage of sagas and stories, what we call myths, as well as philosophies, which were told and spoken about so as to try to make sense of this universe and the place of humankind and the meaning um, and purpose of it all. And one of the ways for doing this was to figure out which God would be the most able to convey blessing or favor on an individual or a community. And so different cities in, in uh, the Greek world had patron gods that they worshipped. But the God who could bring you protection or prosperity was not necessarily a God who was interested that much in righteousness or goodness. The gods could be just as petty and capricious and immoral as the people who worshipped them. So the people had moral consciences. They were not without a sense of right and wrong. Um, but when their consciences were pricked, they didn't turn to the gods for an escape from shame or to find forgiveness. It was not to the gods that they turned. It was, um, there was not this tie that we have between good and moral behavior and God worship. It was perhaps more like the entering a, a football pool. And you can think of it as being like football, the way the rest of the world sees it, or the way North Americans see it. But you would pick your team on Mount Olympus uh, to see who was going to win the World Cup that year, or the Super Bowl. And depending on whether you chose the right team or the right God would, would uh, result in the blessings, or not blessings, uh, that would come your way. Now, that's a very crass way of putting it. 
But the, there's a sense in which, or what I'm trying to get across is the sense in which um, the favor of the gods was not dependent on behavior the way it is with us. When men and women from that kind of background were persecuted with a faith that taught one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and one Redeemer who was made flesh, suffered, died, and rose again, a God who cares very much about justice and mercy and human behavior and cares very much about his creation, which he loves. That concept was not really present in the Greco-Roman world. So perhaps for some of these people who were hearing the gospel for the first time, um, this new religion had a ring of truth to it. Perhaps the message of the gospel shone forth with a breaking light of hope that they hadn't heard before. Perhaps they felt a need for a, a remedy for the shame and the fear that they inevitably felt. Who knows what means the Holy Spirit used to call some of these people to the cross as members of his body. As the early church began to gain the notice of the Roman Empire, this new group of believers were given the name Christians, and that was not a, um, a name to be proud of in the culture, it was a derogatory name. And soon they became targets of persecution, just as they bore the name, just because they bore the name of Jesus. They were being punished and suffering material deprivation instead of material blessing, which was not the pattern perhaps that they expected from their background, where if they worship the right gods, they should receive um, a material blessing. And it may be that some of them were beginning to think that this new faith was not what they had signed up for. Some had begun to think that this one true God, who is both all-powerful and all-righteous and all-loving, was not the God they thought he was, because far from being rewarded for their faith, it seemed that they were suffering for it. Peter and probably other leaders of the church began to hear this wavering of faith, and he wrote to the fledgling congregations to tell them good news and bad news. The bad news was that being faithful to Christ is not a protection against suffering that befalls all humankind, nor is it a protection against the kind of persecution that befalls uh, those who are trying to be faithful to a righteous God. He could not promise them the kinds of blessings that they might have been looking for or relief from persecution that they had hoped for. This passage is directed at this kind of faith community. Now the question arises uh, as to whether any of this has any relevance for us today. After all, the majority of citizens of the Western world um, has deep roots in Christian traditions and a huge portion of those who do not identify themselves as Christians are still believers in, in one God who cares about righteousness. Furthermore, in this part of the world, in Canada, we have not yet suffered for bearing the name of Christ, not really seriously. Nevertheless, the the passage does have relevance for us in, in at least three ways. First, it is the familiarity uh, with the God of Christianity that has driven some people like, like Stephen Fry to reject the God of Christian faith. There has been a 
recognition of this conflict between um, the expectation of blessing when you're doing good um, and the reality that we see of the suffering of those who appear to be innocent around us that has driven people like that to a strident and angry atheism. In fact, our own culture's rejection of Christianity and of Christians is on the rise. And I saw a recent poll just last week, or the headlines that the poll generated, which said that Canadians consider religions more damaging than beneficial. The church has generally enjoyed a favorable relationship with our culture, and whether you think that favor is deserved or, or not, um, the well of goodwill that Christians have uh, enjoyed is, seems to be rapidly drying up. I don't know if current trends will continue, but if they do, I'm pretty sure that bearing the name of Christ will soon be a cause of derision and uh, hostility and possibly even of persecution. So how do we respond to that? Well, one way um, that we might respond is to get angry and to speak out. I've mentioned Stephen Fry. I have to admit, when I heard the CBC radio story covering the incident in Ireland, well, I got angry at what he said about God and I'll head up with fantasies of giving Stephen Fry a piece of my mind. If I had him on the stage with me in a debate, I would demolish him with my rapier wit and incisive logic. You know that... If you watched Stephen Fry, you know that that would not be my experience. When he went on the radio in Ireland and made the comments that he did, Irish authorities launched an investigation into possible charges of blasphemy, as I mentioned. But is this kind of response, this uh, response of using the law against a person who speaks out like that, or speaks out of uh, his own struggling with this question, is that a helpful attitude, or is my attitude of anger really helpful? Not really. It's not helpful for me personally. It doesn't help me in my faith to grow. It's not helpful for the kingdom. People who are stridently angry at anti-Christian Christian people, Jesus teaches our, our neighbors. And according to Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan, those are people whom we are called to love. They may be angered by religious symbols, angry at religious people, angry at any accommodation of religious practice in the public arena. And although it's puzzling to me that they are angered by something that they don't believe in, I am told, um, I can't verify this myself, but I am told that some, anyway, have been deeply disappointed in life or deeply hurt by what they have seen around them, deeply affected by the suffering that they've seen, if not in themselves, in others. And so the very idea that this world could have been created by a loving God enrages them. It might be a lesson for us to recognize when we meet somebody like that, somebody stridently, angrily anti-God and anti-Christian, that instead of getting all angry and defensive in return, we might want to ask ourselves, how can I love this person whom Jesus called my neighbor? How can I love this enemy whom Jesus said I was to love? As Peter says in the, his same letter in the previous chapter, how can we, as Peter puts it, 
How can we always be prepared to give an answer to everyone that asks us to give a reason for the hope that we have, but to do this by using the laws of blasphemy? Not by using the laws of blasphemy, but doing it with gentleness and respect, Peter says. There are enemies. Jesus has given us a clear call to fight the enemies by loving. The second thing that is relevant to us from this passage is the advice that Peter gives to, uh, in verse 15 of this passage. If you're going to suffer at the hands of, perse uh, of persecutors, let it be for the right reasons. Let it be for the same reason that Jesus suffered. And then Peter gives three pretty obvious reasons why people who suffer prosecution in the law uh, has nothing to do with the suffering for the name of Christ. He says, if you're charged with murder and you are guilty and convicted and sent to jail, he doesn't say all of that, but that's what's implied, don't try to say that the state is persecuting you for being a Christian. You're being punished because you're a murderer. If you are charged with theft and you are guilty and going to jail, don't try to say that you're, the state is persecuting you for being a Christian. You're being punished for being a thief. That has nothing or does nothing to bring honor to God. And likewise with any other criminal activity. In those instances, punishment is not uh, a bewildering event, but a plain and simple and uh, logical outcome of one's actions. But then Peter throws in a fourth caveat. He says, if you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal. And then he says, or even as a meddler. Now that word meddler is difficult to translate. They, most of the modern translations use meddler. Um, and that's probably the best translation. But I think it, it covers all the kinds of things where we might consider that persecution is coming to us when it really is caused by something else altogether. I don't think Peter's original readers, or we, uh, would have any difficulty with the first three. That there is some kind of justice coming to those who steal or who murder or commit other kinds of crimes. But Peter says in this fourth, um, this fourth category of meddling, uh, something that we should think more carefully about. Something I think that he threw in there to give them something to think about. I know I have a tendency to take offense at something I read in the newspapers or hear in the phone or uh, in a show or see in some social media post. And I can get all riled up and rant and rave and tell my wife and my kids um, about something that I feel is not right somebody should do something about. And if it weren't for some of those people I just mentioned, I might be tweeting on uh, angry things on Twitter. I can climb up on my high horse and fight for a cause because I think that I'm right. It might be a news story about Russia and Ukraine. It might be something in the church, some doctrine somebody has that I think is wrong. It might be the actions of a politician or the comments in a, in a Twitter post. Now, I might be right in my opinion, but even if I am, if I allow those thoughts to anger 
Where if I send a scathing tweet in response to someone um, who, harboring thoughts, if I have the idea that I'd like to throw somebody under a bus because they don't agree with me or because they seem to be thwarting some plan that I want to, that I hold dear and that I want to move forward, then I am not suffering for Christ's sake. I am suffering for my own ego's sake, and there will be no reward in heaven for harboring those kinds of thoughts or for throwing anybody under the bus, even if I just do it in the imagination. And no, I haven't really wished anybody to be thrown under the bus more than half a dozen times in the last month or so. But maybe that's not your struggle. Maybe there are other things you have supported that turned out to be wrong-headed or wrong-hearted, and it has led you to think you were justified in your righteous anger. How does the church split come about? How is the deeply wounding words, how do they escape my lips when I thought I was speaking God's truth and in reality was patting myself on the back for being God's little soldier? Peter's almost throwaway warning um, is that we ought to be careful when we think we are suffering for Christ's sake, when really we are giving uh, or taking offense for our own ego's sake. Sometimes it's really hard to tell the difference. And the third reason we may see the relevance of this passage to our times is our need to deepen our understanding of what it means to suffer for Christ's sake. I think we are all hardwired with this basic belief that if you do right, the universe or fate or the gods or whomever or whatever it is um, behind it, that that ought to reward you according to your efforts to be good. And our need for justice demands meaning. And if someone does wrong or is lazy or downright evil, the universe is likely going to punish that person. When the Gentile men and women in the first century turned away from the wicked practices and turned instead to place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, it would be quite natural for them to expect that God's protection and favor would smile on them. And in many ways, that is how the world works. Those who live by the sword do tend to die by the sword. We all can cite many examples of how we may reap what we sow, but the confusing thing, the strange thing going on in the neighborhood is when it doesn't work, when it doesn't work that way and Peter, uh, among others, were faced with this pastoral problem when he began to see, when other mature Christian leaders began to see this struggle that was happening in the mostly Gentile churches. These Christians who had turned away from their wicked ways were beginning to encounter persecution and to suffer for it. Peter says to them, don't be surprised, you may think something strange is happening. And then he shares with them a part of the secret of Christian living that is really very, very difficult. Difficult for them, difficult for us. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he prayed with his disciples. These prayers, or some of these prayers, are found in, uh, in John 17. 
Jesus' great pastoral prayer. And he prayed these words found in verse 1 of chapter 17. Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. Glorify your Son. These words prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, hours from when he will be arrested. And four verses later, Jesus prays, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work that you gave me to do. I don't know quite what Jesus means when he seems to say that he has completed the work that the Father has given him to do. But it almost seems from this point as though the agony in the garden, his trial, his crucifixion, his resurrection, and his ascension are all of one piece of what he was speaking of about his glorification. This is not easy. It is not how we are hardwired to think and feel. Many of the Psalms, we hear the psalmist crying out to God to wreak justice against evildoers in the world. In Psalm 68, we hear the words, may God arise, may his enemies be scattered, may his foes flee before him. And I like the next bit because it reminds me of a Clint Eastwood movie. As smoke is blown away by the wind, may you blow your enemies away. And we are assured that God's justice will prevail through the cross, but it is not easy to see God's justice in the Good Friday and Easter Sunday events. In fact, Jesus' crucifixion was a travesty of justice considered in purely human terms. But in some mysterious way that we can not really begin to understand, justice mixed with mercy, agony mixed with victory, separation and imputed shame, shame not deserved but laid upon him, these things were Jesus' glorification. You know, there are various attempts to explain the atonement. There is a ransom theory, a ransom theory and penal substitution theory and moral influence theory and others. I don't think any of them or all of them perhaps can truly encompass what was happening upon the cross. But Jesus saw it all and he called it his glorification. And Peter and others with Jesus went through this kind of agony of suffering. And though some ran away and some denied him, they were there to come to a, some kind of an understanding of what it means to suffer and be glorified. These first century Gentile people, turning from whatever lifestyle they had been enjoying or enduring or suffering, looked to the cross and found the Savior. But the young ones, uh, no sooner that they had done so than they uh, began to realize that bearing the name of Christ uh, would make them targets. Soon individual instances of persecution um, grew and eventually received official sanction by the Emperor Nero himself. And into this situation, Peter, whose life soon would be taken by the very same regime, spoke this gentle, difficult, challenging message. Suffering for the sake of being a Christian is not strange, it is not evidence of punishment for sin. It is not evidence that Christianity is just a misguided religion. Instead, it is an integral part of the Christian life. It is to be seen as a privilege and a glory. 
to share in the glory of Jesus in his death and his resurrection. Now, notice how in this passage the word glory keeps cropping up. In verse 13, instead of being surprised or disappointed or embarrassed when suffering in Christ's name, Peter says, rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and God rests on you. And here's the hard bit. What was true of first century Christians is true for Christians today. And all the millennia in between. You know, we the church in the Western world have not really suffered that much in Christ's name as yet. There are many, many parts of the world where Christians are suffering and in many cases being killed just because they are Christians. We need to be in earnest prayer for those who suffer in this way but also need to realize that that path, um, whether the suffering be caused by official persecution or because of the, um, the way the universe and life uh, has handed to us, handed, handed to us uh, difficult things, and the recognition that all of us will one day uh, reach the end of our life and go to be with God in glory, I don't long for this kind of suffering. In fact, truth be known, I fear it. I don't know how I would hold up under real persecution. And I'm sure that God does not want us to long for or pray for this kind of suffering. Peter was not writing to the church, urging them to pray for suffering. He was writing to help those who were already suffering to go deep, deep in their walk with God and to see the glory and the privilege of suffering for Christ's name and find Jesus there with them. Some of you may be tempted to ask the question, why me? Some of you may be suffering from an illness that is debilitating. Some of you may have health issues um, that are preventing you from doing what you long to do or frustrating your plans. Some of you may face setbacks, a job or career that you can't uh, get, or a relationship that isn't working out. That isn't the kind of suffering that Peter was talking about, it is true, but it is suffering nonetheless, and this passage can still be an invitation for us to go deeper into the mystery of the grace of God as we walk through this life and walk with him. Because it seems with suffering that either we walk with God through the valley of the shadow of, the de of death, or we walk away from him. The consolation of the Christian who suffers in this promise of, is the promise of this fellowship. It might be felt or it might not be felt at the time, but his promise is there that those who suffer in his name will know his blessing. The conversation that Amy Grant had with her friend who had been sexually abused as a child crushed her, crushed Amy Grant, and challenged her faith. And on her friend's behalf, she cried out in the song, Ask me if I know there's a God up in the heaven. Where did he go in the middle of her shame? And Amy Grant had no answer. And she had no right to give a trite Christian answer to the suffering friend and the suffering that that friend still endured into adulthood. But her friend did say to her, 
he was in the middle. He was in the middle of the shame, in the middle of the pain and the fear. And he is bringing life to her again. We don't have the right, really, to offer that for anyone but our own selves as we walk with God and with the fellowship of friends and fellow Christians to help us. But that's a deep walk with God. It is deeper than most of us want to go. Maybe it is deeper than most of us are called to go. But maybe it comfort to us if and when we do endure such suffering that there is ample testimony in the scriptures and in the history of the saints that there is the promise in Jesus' prayer in John 17. This is eternal life that they, that is believers, may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have said. The promise is repeated in 1 Peter in our passages this morning. It's not too easy for any of us to suffer, but those who suffer for Christ's sake may partake in the glory of the passion of Jesus and the glory of his work on the cross in ways that never, may never be known by any of us this side of paradise. And the final journey into glory that awaits us all may be an easier journey for those who have walked that path before. In the final verse in the chapter, Peter gives some practical advice for all of us. He doesn't say, seek suffering, that you may experience glory, but simply this. So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. The message to the Christians who were um, entering into a period of persecution and the message today for those of, us, those of us who are suffering, you ought to do, you oughtn't to do anything to bring it on. You can't do anything to avoid it. So commit yourself to the faithful creator. Cast yourselves upon him. Put your hand in his hand. Let's pray. Gracious God, we go from this place of worship and we go about our lives. We relate to our friends, our relatives, our neighbors. And in all of these various ways in which we walk through this world, there are times when we rejoice, there are times when we suffer, there are times when we have fun. Help us, Lord, to bring you with us or for us to walk with you through all of these experiences. So whether we rejoice or whether we struggle, we may do that by your side and in your care. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.